0: Hello, welcome to another episode of NBRI, New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retailing Studies, May's Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Venki Shankar, Director of Research and Coleman Chair, Professor of Marketing. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome our guest today, Dr. Kuhn Powell, Distinguished Professor of Marketing at Northeastern University and Co-Director of its Digital Analytics, Technology and Automation, also known as Data Initiative. Powell is the associate editor of Journal of Marketing and International Journal of Research and Marketing. He's also the president-elect of the Academic Council of the American Marketing Association and vice president of practice at the INFORMS Association for Marketing Science. Uh, Kuhn started the annual marketing dynamics conference in 2004 to bring together researchers fascinated by dynamic problems in marketing, which is a very strong and vibrant conference which is going on even today. Uh, And uh, besides this uh, multitude of uh, published studies, and he's uh, among the uh, top 2% of published uh, authors in marketing, Kuhn has also found time to consult for several companies, including Amazon, Kraft Heinz, Marks & Spencer, Microsoft, Nissan, Sony, and Unilever, to name a few, primarily in the areas Uh, of marketing mix effectiveness, marketing mix modeling, online and offline marketing metrics, social media, brand equity, business models, and I can go on. Uh, Incidentally, Kuhn has also a PhD in marketing from the University of California at Los Angeles. Welcome, Kuhn, for joining me in this conversation today. How have you been the past nine months or so?
1: <laughs> Thanks, Frankie. It's, it's incredible. It has already been nine months, uh, right? Uh, I, I have been good. We have been coping. Uh, I always say, you know, we're very blessed to be healthy and wealthy. Um, and um, even but, but on, on the work side, I always you know, say we have double the work and half the fun these days. So I, I'm keeping very busy. Uh, I'd love to be on, 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 on such sessions as the one with you and talk to colleagues. But I really miss meeting you guys in person at the fun conference uh, or at, at some other occasion. So there, there's just yeah. something magical of getting with a few people in the same room and enjoying all the brilliant minds, uh, you know, maybe with a good glass of wine or a beer at the same time. But, but I, I do really miss the, uh, the, the contact uh, that I used to having with everybody.
0: Yeah, but I'm glad to see a cheerful face, despite all these uh, lack of personal interaction. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, I also noticed that uh, you've, uh, you've also been very enormously productive during this time. So I guess uh, you've uh, used the time very wisely <laughs> to, to really rack up on your research and your consulting, I guess, right?
1: Uh, exactly. I mean, there's the saying: you never get a good, a good um, let a good crisis, go, uh, a good crisis yeah, go, go to waste. Opportunity, yeah, and yeah. and and I I think one of the things that that you asked me to prepare, of how would you describe yourself? And and I'm, right. I, I, I was I'm on the extreme yeah. point of what psychologists call a promotion focus. So I see life as opportunities you either take or that you let go. And, right. and I've always been, I, I never realized that was a talent. But whenever I was in a really fortunate situation, I really felt grateful and I knew I was very fortunate. And because right. things always change, they never last. Uh, I, I really can kind of enjoy when I'm on a good Right, or I'm a, I'm in a research project that I really like, and so I have had the pleasure to uh, to work with new co-authors in this uh, in, in this pandemic situation, work on fascinating new things, like you know what is the long-term effect of of being in lockdown and things like that. So so it has been it has been very eye-opening and, and very interesting for me as well.
0: That's a good description of your Promotion focus, very positive (laughs) and trying to grab opportunities, which is uh, always fascinating. That brings me to the question of uh, please describe your research journey so far. I know since your Ph.D. days at uh, UCLA, um, how have you moved on and how would you track your progress and some turning points in your career?
1: But I always would describe myself as lucky. (laughs) It's very important. It's more important to be lucky than smart, I sometimes say. But but I have had had such, you know, fantastic mentors uh, throughout. Uh, So actually, even before, right? So I started my PhD in my native Belgium. Uh, But then in my first year, I had the opportunity to present at the EMAC doctoral colloquium. So in in, in Europe, they let the students present. And Mike Hanses was one of the professors evaluating my work at the time. And so I was like, "Well, this guy is so cool, and apparently you can do a PhD in marketing in the US. Who knew?" And so then I switched to UCLA, um, and, and I basically came there in the midst of the first uh, internet boom, right? So every month there was a PhD student quitting and saying, "Hey, come on, Kun, join this company with me." And I'm like, "No, I came here for a PhD." And so, uh, so, so over time, I, I find that really kind of um, um, kind of uh, Uh, sketched my my whole kind of research uh, journey I think one of the key things so my thesis was on long-term marketing effectiveness and when I graduated I really wanted to be in a position ultimately to consult let's call it senior managers so I didn't want to specialize in let's say just uh, market communication or just pricing uh, or just new products I wanted to have a good idea about if, if you're a senior manager or a CEO and you want to allocate your money to a new product launch, uh, getting into new distribution channels, changing your pricing, changing your market communication, I wanted to know enough and have research projects on all the, the classic four P's of the marketing mix uh, to really consult at that level. So a lot of my work has, has, has been seeming to some people as very eclectic <laughs> because you know for every paper I wrote, I had to uh, relearn the literature. Let's say new products are in pricing, But it really kept me curious and on my toes. And so uh, I really enjoyed doing that. And of course, the last 10 years, that there hasn't been one paper in which I haven't used some form of digital marketing, uh, some form of online, because, uh, you know, as much as it was hyped in the end of the 90s, and I was, you know, very careful to not to go too much into that hype at the time. Of course, long term in the last 20, 25 years, it has truly changed how we interact, uh, how we are as consumers and how we can do things as companies.
0: Right. That brings us. Uh, to the uh, your research areas like you you called it eclectic but I would say I can see some convergence in those areas like you're working on social media marketing online offline platforms now you have mindset metrics you have shareholder value I think all of these are somewhat related to each other in a big picture way so you know unpack some of your recent research if you could and let us know what are some of the projects that you're working on and what are some of your findings in those projects? Okay,
1: I'd, I'd love to. So, so from training, I'm an engineer, like many of us in quantitative marketing. So I see live as- input. Nobody, don't worry.
0: Even <laughs> I'm an engineer, nobody- Here knows. we go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I <laughs> see things as input, throughput, output. And so, okay. and so the input is typical marketing actions, you know, defined very broadly as we do in academia. Um, And then the output is typically something like uh, sales, profits or donations or stock price, depending on what your organization really wants. And I'm fascinated by throughput metrics. So I've always been interested in in, in what this goes in between. So what are some good metrics if you do, let's say, an ad campaign uh, or you go with a new product? uh, It may take a very long time before your hard performance gets affected. So what are some good metrics in between and what are some criteria? And so, and so my criteria are things like uh, they have ultimate purchase conversion. So if you see an increase in your engagement metrics on social media, my first question is, yeah, but do they ultimately increase your sales? Uh, the second criteria is that it needs to have marketing responsiveness. If you're going to put a metric on a dashboard for somebody and you're going to reward them or punish them based on it, they, sh- they should know that there's something they can do to affect it. Uh, And then, of course, there's things like long-term impact. But I think those three criteria are the most important. And so originally in my life, I started to analyze these mindset metrics that we get to service, right? So you get a representative sample of Americans, you ask them who they were going to vote for, or you ask them if they're aware of a brand and if they're going to consider it. Uh, And then more and more, of course, I've used these online metrics, online word of mouth, also offline word of mouth recently, by the way, Uh, things like uh, click-throughs, and paid media to really get a better idea of that. So, so, so my one of my main research areas is that really. So to what extent to survey metrics, uh, asking consumers why they do what they do and, and what they know, to what extent does that give you better or different information than online proxies, which is really what you do uh, and, and doesn't give that much information about
0: why you do it. So on that regard, I'm fascinated by your paper in Journal of Interactive Marketing, where you find that uh, you Online surveys can supplement uh, the hard data online, and uh, but you find a very nice contingency factor for high involvement brands versus low involvement uh, brands. So please tell us more about that.
1: Yeah. So this this research originally actually started in a cooperation with Google, and this is a while ago. And this was Google the Netherlands, a really cool guy, Joris Marek Benjansen, who uh, who combines. Uh, um, Aikido with marketing very well, by the way. He has a book about it. And, and oh. so he said, well, you know, why on earth would anybody ever have a, a, a survey anymore, even online? You know, we know everything you do. So it's it's a little bit like the, the book about uh, everybody lies, right? Kind of this idea that what you search for kind of, you know, is much more truthful than what you would tell me in a survey. So, yeah. so his perspective was like, stop, you know, spending money on these things. Let's just do it. And, and he wanted to prove that. And so, and so we went and we got the broadest data set I have ever had. So we got 36 brands, 15 very different uh, categories. So all the way from insurance to cars uh, to then kind of the fast-moving consumer goods uh, that you and I know very well because we have a lot of data on them. And so for all of these brands, we got weekly data on the survey metrics. Uh, and this was from JFK, by the way. And then on, on the uh, paid, uh, owned, and social metrics. And we had lots of control variables too. And so, and so when we put kind of the, uh, them to the test, it turns out, number one, that there was a very low correlation between the survey metrics and the online activity metrics, which was really surprising. Because if you look at, at, at what people believe, uh, half of the people, I would say roughly, right, say, well, well, of course, online activity is very predictive because it's just a manifestation of your attitudes. Because you, Venki, really like the Mays Business School, right? Uh, yeah. Because that's your attitude. Of course, you're going to search more for it and so forth. So so, so let's just measure your, your survey and it's fine. And, and some very traditional brand thinking goes behind that one. On the other hand, you have people, uh, and for instance, you know, Byron Sharp is one of them, who's like, why on earth would you ever do a survey? People just make it up at the moment. Uh, yeah. it, it, attitudes actually follow behavior. So you like a certain brand of soft drink just because you have used it a lot in the past. So yeah. for them, it's the activity that comes first and attitudes, you know, what you say on services constructed. And in either of these perspectives, there should be a high correlation between the two, and we don't find that. And that was really kind of one interesting kind of uh, hunch that they would give complementary information. Uh, For high-involvement brands, yes, especially nowadays. So if you're talking about smartphones, of course, you and I will do a lot of activity online, and we will check out the brands that that we are interested in purchasing. But if you're talking about toothpaste, if you're talking about uh, more mundane projects, you know, that you and I would talk about uh, offline. So, so, so I may come to you, right? Suppose that I'm moving into, into Texas and I say, well, Venki, I'm here. You kind of, which, which, which home insurance would you recommend to me? Uh, we would talk about that offline as, as, as normal beings. We help each other, but that's not something sexy you would tweet about. And, right. so, and so a
0: lot of the although, stuff that is more I mean, mundane. Sorry, yeah, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. There is a lot of uh, work on online word of mouth and uh, uh, people asking crowdsourcing uh, when they need help. Okay, I'm moving to this place. Mention all the, uh, re- give me all the right recommendations. So where do you think that fits in with respect to this offline casual word of mouth?
1: I, 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 that's, that's a wonderful point. So, so I would say on the one hand, yes, there are people who do this, right? So by the yeah. way, also when you're moving, you can tell Amazon, hey, I'm moving. And they yeah. will serve you more relevant ads for when you're moving, also when you're having a baby. But, yeah. but look at the, uh, the percentage of people who do that. So of all the people who are looking for a more mundane project, how many people actually kind of of, of so that's online? And, and so the question is of representability. So yeah. if, if, if I'm a toothpaste brand only listening to online word of mouth, uh, is not going to give me a full picture. I will need to have something like offline word of mouth. And so what, what we find in this research is really interesting is that if you want to explain your sales week to week, then uh, the online activity metrics are really good. But if you want to predict them three months out, it's actually the attitude metrics which are better. And, and, and so a bit cheeky, I call this being brand right versus being brand right now. So, so if, okay. if, if you're checking me out online, then yeah. I have I score high on what we call contextual interest, right? So, so you're yeah. currently interested in me probably, but that okay. doesn't say anything about really what you're going to do in three months from now. Maybe some competitor of me is, is more hot at the time of more viral. Whereas, yeah. whereas if I have these attitude metrics and I really kind of know what you're thinking and feeling about me, I have a better shot at predicting what you're going to do three to six months out.
0: That makes sense. But that brings us to the skeptics uh, of a lot of these research who saying that all these social media inherently, as you rightly said, Brand, right now, is that it's all instantaneous, uh, very short-term focus, and people's, predicts people's behavior short-term, but in the long run, they are not that critical or useful. Uh, what do you, how do you respond to that kind of a criticism about social media's impact?
1: So, so I, I mean, as you know, I'm a very big social media user. Um, right, right. I, I am a skeptic in social media advertising. Let me just admit it. Um, mm-hmm. And the skepticism comes from two main sources. Uh, number one is my own experience. So, so I, have been, I have been paying a social media site money <laughs> to promote oh, okay. my, my professional sites. And, and, and the result of that one was really, really low. I mean, below even my lowest expectations. So so that's my own experience, right? Right. And then, of course, you know, social media sites say that they're very effective. But I have seen very few peer-reviewed academic articles about that. And and, and so I'm like, okay, I can see it for certain things that are very social, like alcohol uh, or video gaming. I can see as a brand where you can have a lot of effectiveness on social media. Uh, I'm very skeptical for other products and services. So if you think about kind of putting an ad for your product on a site where people go to primarily to connect to their friends and family versus an online store where people primarily come to buy products and explore new products, my hypothesis is that the effectiveness is going to be very different. And also things like saturation and annoyance with ads half-life of ads, everything we know about advertising is going to be very different in an online store versus a social media site. Just like if I interrupt you with my wonderful new toothpaste when you're physically in an offline store versus whether you're walking on the street, it's going to be a very different interruption. So so, so I have this paper a a few years out which talks about content integrated versus content separated marketing. And, And so this is for an online retailer. And we basically find that if, if you put an ad on the site where actually people are looking for something relevant, then, uh, you know, so, so, so you get the same amount of people, whether it's content integrated or content separated to your online retail site, let me put it that way. So you get the same yeah. amount of traffic, but then the yeah. people who come from you from a content integrated ad are much more likely to go to product page views and to convert to a purchase. So, so yeah. in general, I think this whole kind of distinction, whether you're at the show on a content integrated site where people, you know, if you're a shoe retailer, let's say it's a hobby site where people talk about shoes, Those kind of people and those kind of clicks are going to be much more valuable for you than if you put it somewhere else. I mean, even something as simple as retargeting uh, has proven to be a lot less effective than people thought. So if, if I look for something really cool uh, and then you know an hour later I'm checking the sports result and you retarget me. well, I'm no longer really in the mood for the product that I was searching for Maybe I already bought it right? or maybe I just don't want to be interrupted. And, and so I feel that in general uh, companies really overestimate the effectiveness of what we call content separated ads in that particular right. one and they and they underestimate the sales effectiveness of content integrated ads.
0: I think that's a very useful distinction you're making. marketers should pay attention to Uh, that brings me to this whole concept of digital advertising per se you know (laughs) Uh, we today learned that digital advertising has overtaken non-digital forms of advertising in the us with about 110 billion dollars this year expected to hit out of a 215 billion dollar overall uh advertising spend and uh three years ago we were just one third of that so it it suggests that more and more firms are getting convinced and they want to move not only their dollars online the pandemic of course yep. helped a lot but also the issue of uh, what i also learned was the small and medium businesses constitute a tremendous portion of this growth it and means- uh, and it looks like mu- you know the tv advertising which is only about 40 billion dollars which has become one third of almost uh, digital uh, and uh, it used to be that TV advertising was the go-to media for reach, at least, if you want to reach a uh, wider audience. But even that is uh, coming under a lot of scrutiny. Now you're saying that, you know, uh, the effectiveness of uh, ad- advertising may be overstated, particularly the content-separated versus non-separated. And also you're making the point about retargeting effectiveness. Where do you think this is heading? You know, you think that this is viable, you uh, good spending of uh, advertising dollars or are we still in the same uh, conundrum <laughs> where we don't know where half of our money goes
1: <laughs> well if this is a good or a bad idea i would say it depends right that's obviously <laughs> <always a> good the <laughs> good answer to any mba question as we know yeah. uh, but, but yeah. i mean my perspective on this is, is the following I, I do think that there's a huge place for digital advertising. I mean, more right. and more consumers are online. I mean, the pandemic has accelerated that. Uh, and, and my personal opinion, which which I'm now researching to get some evidence for, is, is I'm really in between the two camps of people. Some people say, you know, 2020 has changed everything in consumer behavior forever. And then there's people who say nothing has ever changed from the moment the lockdown is lifted. Everybody goes back to exactly how they were before. And, and I'm somewhere in between. So I think a lot of people have have done online purchases for the first time in some categories. Take online grocery. Yeah. So, 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 so kind of the, the segment of people that did online grocery was relatively small and it has greatly expanded. And personally, I like buying my groceries online now. And, and and over time I've I've gotten better at it, right? So the only problem with online grocery that I find, and you know you may have another perspective, is that when I go into a physical store, I get reminded by cues about things that I otherwise forget to buy. And 20 years ago, when my wife and I first would, would buy stuff online, we were only users from like Peapod and so forth. We did forgot half of our list. But over time, we became experienced with that. And so I think that people have now gotten used to online buying stuff that they didn't buy online before. And so that part of that uh, that learning will create a habit for the future.
0: So so well, I definitely agree that there's,
1: that there's a role for that
0: no. But wait a minute. People who are buying online would say that you don't need to even remember those two <laughs> because online it is saved and you, have, you can repeat your orders. Whereas in an in-person shopping experience, you'll have to remember and you need all those cues. So you think that, that is that, a great point.
1: Yeah. So so, right. so that's true. Online offers you a different set of cues, which made to yeah. you maybe much more useful than what you have. Yes. And, and so to a large effect, kind of the cues we got offline is because the, we, we learned them over time. We became familiar with them. And to certain kinds of shoppers, online provides much better cues. You're right. They remember what you exactly what you did before.
0: You, you know. You remember. You talked about your early PhD days, the turn of the century, and yeah. dot com boom. And that was the time in which I was also starting to work on these online offline and remember our yeah. project with Arvind. And uh, one of the benefits of online at that time for service uh, was that, you know, you know, for hotels in there, you could actually uh, go online and check out how a hotel looks like by, you yep. know, virtual uh, 3D. And uh, you also look and look at the maps and all these kinds of facilities were not available offline. So that means online provided added benefits. Same with the, uh, uh, grocery too. At that time, yep. you remember we had Peapod. And, uh, you know, when we looked at the data, people could actually sort products by nutritional value. They could sort products by calorie content. Uh, they could filter a lot of things which you cannot do in person. But do you think, And but yet, in spite of that, grocery was the last bastion of online conversion, as you rightly pointed uh. out. So where do you think, uh, are we, uh, looking at a future where people now have understood, oh, okay, these benefits I have not realized so far. Now that I'm exposed to these benefits, I'm never going to go back to the same old shopping again. What do you think?
1: <laughs> so, so, and I think it's really in the middle, right? So, so, so one of the key parts of my dissertation was, uh, you know, what is a long-term effect and what is hysteresis and partial hysteresis. <laughs> so, it's a right. bit of a technical term for your audience. But so, right. hysteresis comes from electricity, right? So, if yeah, you right. put electricity in a spiral of of uh, of steel and you think the right. ele- electricity soars away, then it's still there. So, so it's, it's a name that, you know, Mike Hansen and Marnie the Kimpe had for, for, for the holy grail of marketing. You do a one-shot marketing action, like one ad campaign, and then people get the habit and they buy you forever. It's, it's, it's unbelievably high ROI. Mm. And so what we typically see in reality is, is partial hysteresis. So that means that uh, also with, with, with the pandemic, right? So online grocery shopping goes up and then it goes back down. And so it stabilizes at you could call it the new normal that is higher than before, but right. it doesn't stay as high as as during a lockdown. So I think it's gonna be somewhere in between. And then of course the, the the sixty-four million dollar question, as they call it, is is you know, if, if you're betting your company on either one, you know, to mm-hmm. what extent is it gonna go closer to the old normal or stay closer to the lockdown
0: high? So, you know, since you're also researching at the impact of lockdown. Do you think that uh, you know, with the vaccine, vaccines coming in, and let's assume that the vaccines are effective and they are distributed, and let's say within six to nine months, everybody has access to vaccine, and many of us actually are vaccinated. Where do you see um, our uh, marketing and retailing, particularly uh, in the next uh, at least nine, to yeah. nine months to 12 months?
1: Uh, so, so I think a lot of the old trends will uh, will accelerate, right? The dead of the mall. Right. Uh, the mall is is such a typical kind of concept that was very strong in at least Americans minds (laughs) (laughs) that we know that we both you know traveled into in our lives for about I would say two three decades and the mall kind of really dependent on a pretty rich middle class that liked to hang out at the mall and do stuff and teenagers used to hang out at the mall but of course you know we shouldn't forget the mall destroyed the main street right because before the mall you had these kind of beautiful streets where you would go to and and I saw the same thing when I was in Turkey So, so all of these cities in Turkey had these wonderful main street, wonderful shops, and then they built these big malls, and of course, the the merchandise had to come or or the clientele had to come from somewhere. So now you see that the malls are uh, a lot less profitable. Also, their anchor stores are going out of business. And so, and so, I think we're going to return to a situation where, yes, there's going to be a huge value for online shopping, specifically for the things you mentioned, also for the social aspect of having reviews, for instance, right? Or, you know, people like you or who bought this also bought that. This is all the kind of stuff that is very hard to replicate offline, that we enjoy online, but it's going to be a much more integrated world where we kind of combine the things. Uh, I'm still, I am still have this big kind of conflict of opinion with my sons, <laughs> so so I think the future is our augmented reality and they think the virtuous is, is virtual reality so, so so my perspective on life is that you know we are a bit tired of living different online and offline lives also in how we pre- present ourselves so, so we want these things to be more integrated and for me Uh, augmented reality is just a wonderful way. You know, you go into a physical store and you have, you know, glasses on uh, that tell you the reviews or something like that or that you bought it before. So you can get all of your cues, but you also have the offline stimulation. So I think that the future will go very much go toward that. Whereas kind of the mall, this idea of anchor stores and that you come there to hang out uh, for two or three hours because you have nothing else to do. Uh, you know, my my kids, you know, in their free time, they play video games uh, on a whole bunch of consoles and they have absolutely zero desire to go to malls with their friends. Uh, they would yeah. rather their friends to come over and play video games together.
0: So you agree that the days of malls being a primary magnet for social shopping is... Uh, is gone, but more you're looking at a hybrid situation where people would go to mall for some human interactions, but they are not the primary driving force in people's lives. Um, mainly Indeed. because you, say, you said the target audience, the millennials and the Gen Z's, your kids and so on, they are probably not very attracted to the old way of shopping, right? Exactly. Is that uh, what yep. I hear from you, right? Yep. I think that that is a very good uh, uh, thought for the future Uh, So far, we've been talking about your fascinating research and all the insights. Tell us a little bit about who is Kuhn Powell's as a person, you know, (laughs) aside from doing all this uh, great research and then doing hundreds of things all at once. Tell us something about your other side, non research side.
1: So, I I mean, this typically comes up in a cocktail party as what you do for fun, uh, right? Right. And and, and so... um, so i have this i have two fascinating sons with very different characters the youngest one is extremely kind of uh uh heavy on sports and so forth so every day i trampoline jump with him outside no matter how cold it gets here in boston even in the snow i will jump the trampoline with him <laughs> okay and then and, and then from the moment he was a little kid we would go kind of jumping from rock to rock uh and that's really mm. nice uh, c- kind of with my wife and my older son, I really enjoy skiing and cycling. So I'm very excited for the skiing season <laughs> to be back okay, here. Okay, good. Uh, and, and then, you know, I I don't have much time for video games, uh, but since my kids are so much into it, I just love video games that the three of us work together towards a common goal and you know and, okay. and so they, they defeat an enemy together uh, instead of kind of just fighting against, against each other, each other. because That's first it. of all I lose against them <laughs> and, and second <laughs> uh, it's it just not the it's not the same kind of togetherness I think
0: and uh, how old are your stents, if I may ask
1: uh, they're 11 and 15 so uh, yeah the, old, the oldest one is in high school and the youngest oh, one okay. in mid school yeah.
0: well I'm sure you're keeping them busy in this uh, <laughs> tough pandemic time But, uh, you know, I'm glad to know that you have a lot of physical activities outside uh, because that helps during this pandemic time. Now, let's look forward five to 10 years from now. I know I asked you for a forecast nine to 12 months from now. Uh, Where do you see marketing or um, retailing or business in general headed? And what should managers be doing or thinking differently for the next five to 10 years to be prepared?
1: Yeah. So, so I, I have been fascinating with the debt of cookies, right? Uh, or the, the impending <laughs> reduced relevance of cookies. Uh, so, and, and, and in, my, in my opinion, and this is, okay, you know, partly because of my experience, I have always been skeptical about the claims of performance marketing. And and, and so you know this, right? So in, in, what is it, 1999 or something like that, when the first banner ad came on, they're like, you know, forget about everything else you do, TV, radio, it's all gone. Because with the banner ad, with the click-through, we can tell you exactly what it's doing. And you don't have to, you know, guess anymore. And then, of course, that was when the click-through rate was something like 2% on the banner ad, and now it's less than 0.001%. So then people that do banner ads say, oh, but wait a minute, you know, a lot of the people who don't click-through, they still see it, it's like a billboard, and you should integrate it in your marketing mix and with synergy, and you would, for instance, show that if people have been exposed to a banner ad, they're more likely to respond to your lower funnel advertising. And, and that's basically what I have been doing all my life, right? I have, I have built systems of... There are all your marketing actions. Uh, this is how they work together. This is how they increase each other's effectiveness. And, and, and this is basically how you then should reallocate your resources. So, so I think that performance marketing, this kind of individual consumer level tracking has been very valuable, uh, but is always missing a big part of the influence that you can track at the individual level. And that could be TV advertising, radio, uh, billboards out of home. It could be offline word of mouth. So I'm really looking forward to combine that, that attribution modeling with marketing mix modeling the aggregate things that I've been doing for a long time, and then to combine that with customer lifetime modeling. So I ultimately would want to go to a situation maybe in five years that I can say, look, you know, Venki has been exposed to these TVs and these radio ads. And by the way, I think TV is fantastic still to, to build a brand and, and it makes everything else more effective. And the research has shown that. Uh, and so I want to say what you're exposed to that way. I want to show what you have specifically done online on my site. And, and on generally industry side, and maybe on my competitors. And then I also really want to know how much, how value you're going to be when I when I acquire you as a customer. Are you one of these people that just going to buy me on price and then leave me? Or are you one of these folks that are going to be lo- very loyal to me for 10 years? And so combining kind of the, the individual level attribution modeling with marketing mix modeling, which is more top down with customer lifetime value, I think would be a, a wonderful kind of uh, a point to get to.
0: All right. That sounds, you describe the holy grail of marketing, <laughs> but uh, what good managers, do you think we would have the data and the wherewithal to be able to do that in five to 10 years? Because we're getting really uh, pressurized uh, in terms of yeah. data availability, privacy, and so on. Do you think we companies would have a 360 view of the customer at all? Because it looks like right now, it, the access and the window is getting narrower and narrower.
1: Well, uh- and this is something that I really felt, right? And I'm going to put, it's not the size of the data in my book up there. So, so, so right. even, and this is now eight years ago, even eight years ago when the big data hype is coming, I'm like, well, the companies I consult, they don't even know what to do with the data they have. So how right. about we first do things like, you know, what is your objective? What is your vision? What do you really want to achieve? And then we go and look for good data to get there. And, and I think our proxies are getting better. Right? so we, okay. we have gotten more and more precise we can never ideally measure you know, perfectly what's in your head uh, that would be illegal and unethical. Uh, so we can never kind of build little chips in millions of consumers' heads to know what they're thinking at every split second, unfortunately <laughs> but but we, we, we have gotten closer, but what I worked uh, with companies much more and also in this book is to say, okay, what do you really want to achieve, how do we get data and how do you then take actions based on the analysis, because in most companies you come in, right, as a consultant They pay you lots of money, they're very happy with your model, you give a big presentation, they pay you and then they don't do anything with what you said. And that has to do with political infighting in the company, but it also has to do with there not being a culture all the way at the top of the company to really be driven by data. Uh, and so and so i find for instance i I'm, I'm still surprised i shouldn't be but i'm still surprised how concepts that you and i know from our academic uh, reading and writing haven't made it really true to popularity in what marketing managers practice every day and so i think there's a huge opportunity to uh, you know to kind of advocate for this and to uh, to make things more available like in podcasts or in easy to read articles and books like you do to to that more and more people would actually start uh, practicing data-driven thinking and conceptualization. Uh, and then I think, so the data part is an important uh, piece of it, but in my experience, it has never been the most, uh, the most important thing of, of helping companies improve their decision-making.
0: Thank you for sharing that, because that is a very honest evaluation, and I can also attest to some of those from my own experience. I think what I'm also noticing a an increased uh, alertness of companies to data-driven analytics-based decision-making. But now you've you've come a long journey in terms of our questions and answers so far. But uh, for the final question, we have a great viewership and uh, uh, listenership in here uh, who are drawn from very different diverse audiences. We have students, former students, executives, public policy officials. Um, We have, uh, you know, other educators also viewing this or listening to this, what message would you have for any of these uh, members for the future? How can they best prepare for a future that is increasingly being reshaped by data, reshaped by all the changes accelerated by the pandemic?
1: I, I I would say number one, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, right? But know your tools and your frameworks. It's just, you know, I, I tell you, it's mind boggling to me that uh, people sometimes who call themselves marketing experts don't know some of the major frameworks and, and what we as academics teach, right? You know, that marketing is not just communication, <laughs> that, yeah. that you know, that you can promise, but you can't deliver. And, and and so there's almost, you know, so there's a lot of this kind of thinking and it works even if you don't have the data. And, and, and maybe this is, you know, a very nice and short anecdote. So, so when I came to Istanbul in 2008, uh, this was basically Basically, um, a conglomerate that had uh, six businesses in six countries, and they said, "Kuhn, powels you know, the crisis is coming. How should how should I react in a recession?" All the academic articles I read says that I have to increase my marketing spending and all my financial managers are telling me that I have to decrease my marketing spending. So I gave him the formula of optimally setting your budget and it requires to know the elasticity. And he's like, Kun, I don't have any data to give you to analyze elasticity. I have no clue what my advertising sales elasticity is. And I said, no problem. Let's just think through the formula. And we thought through the formula and just you know the discipline of the thinking make us decide that we should increase the budget in some countries and businesses and decrease it in another one. And, and, and so just thinking through the elements uh, is, is typically more than half of the benefits you get of hiring an analyst and, and kind of having the discipline of the thinking and then actually getting better estimates by better models and better data. That That's really the the icing on the cake, I would say.
0: Excellent. And that's a very valuable and powerful piece of advice because what you're saying is that please understand the basics and the framework and continuously learn through data and that would be the best way to prepare yourself. On that note, Kuhn, I really wanted to thank you for today's exhilarating conversation with you. We could go on, but in the interest of time, I wanted to uh, stop and thank you so much for sharing your insights and I wish you all the very best uh, in your future research. I'm sure you're going to publish a ton (laughs) of new insight and studies and i i'm going to be eagerly looking forward to reading many of your research uh, thank, thank you, you very and, and,
1: much and if if i may so i made uh, all my papers publicly available so, so i bought the domain name marketingandmetrics.com <laughs> so if okay, you go to you. marketingandmetrics.com you will see them organized by the four p's and, and i hope it's useful in spreading the word of uh, of the research excellent
0: excellent that'll be very helpful our viewers and listeners would definitely go and check it out and thank you so much again thanks cool thank you thank you appreciate it